one constant through all the years, Ray. Beyond the game. The ladies are digging my sweet face. That's the dumbest thing I could think of. Our formula is this. We go out, we hit people in the mouth. You like that? You like that? That is a career ender, just like this show. You're already famous in Rochester, the Watch Out World. It's a faith-based sports radio program. We would be honored if you would join us. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to have you along. This is the Beyond the Game program. I'm Rick Benson along with Zach Barletta. Our website is btgprogram.com and you can find us on social media at btgprogram. Happy Easter weekend to you and your family. This is an encore presentation of the Beyond the Game program. This first segment is from our April 1st broadcast. Zach and I talk about Sidney Crosby and the seemingly different set of standards applied to him and other stars in the NHL. And we take that and then we segue into a discussion about God's impartiality. There can be no doubt that Sidney Crosby gets away with some of the most blatant things Oh yeah, on the ice. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how they don't see this stuff or why they don't call it. I wish to register it's, a complete... It's, it's absolutely unfair. There, there is this double standard in the NHL when it comes to their star players. The result is ugly, and I think it's even dangerous because it leads to injuries. In fact, it's gotten so far out of hand that I'm not sure there's anybody in the NHL who understands how or why the, or the rhyme or the reason to how punishment, how penalties are, are handed out. Now, to be fair, there is no doubt that Crosby's targeted by Penguins' opponents. That it goes both ways. There's multiple examples of this every year, even on the biggest of stages. You can go back to last year's playoffs when Alex Ovechkin hit Crosby with a pretty vicious slash on the wrist. It, it goes both ways, I guess. So, I also think he kind of invites it on himself with some of the stuff like what we're going to talk about. If somebody's trying to say, though, if somebody was trying to present the argument that Crosby's a clean player, well, that's flat out misrepresenting things. There's just That's just not true. He plays hard. He's a tough guy. And because of that rough and tough play, he often, he often crosses the line. Now, whether or not you're pro-Crosby or whether you're anti-Crosby, that's going to determine which way you think the unfairness goes. The fact that the league allows it to continue, the fact that the league doesn't punish him or other players who do such things to to him, well, you're just magnifying the problem. You're just making things that much worse. And I'm not certainly defending the hit put on Penguins' Jake Gunsel in that game with the Sabres that Rasmus Ristolainen put on him. Ristolainen deserved to be punished, deserved to be kicked out of the game, deserved a punishment. But he got a three-game suspension on top of it. He was kicked out early in the game, if I'm not mistaken. So that turned out to be almost four games. And I'm not sure, well, I know darn well, Crosby would never have gotten that same suspension for the same type of hit. To be frank, I don't think any Penguins player would have. Crosby just chopped the tip of a dude's finger off with a slash and got nothing for it. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear what side of the fence the NHL comes down on. Buffalo goaltender Robin Leonard would agree. He said certain teams in this league get the benefit of the doubt. If the jerseys were reversed, I don't think we're standing here talking three games. Mm -hmm. He's right. 
He's right, absolutely. During that same game, cameras caught Sidney Crosby taking a whack with a stick to the groin of Sabres Ryan O'Reilly. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And I wouldn't believe it, except I saw it. It was pretty blatant. It was all over social media in the subsequent days, and of course it goes unpanelized. That's the part I can't believe. I'm not even a Sabre fan, and I saw it multiple times. If you follow hockey, you know this happens. It happens more than you think it should, but even so, ouch. O'Reilly said, at the time it hurt and it threw me off guard. I didn't know it was him until he came up to me on the ice and apologized. He said later on, this is O'Reilly, that he apologized after and said he didn't mean to do it. Once I looked at it, of course, it looked pretty deliberate. After he said, sorry about that, I was going for your stick, and I don't know what happened there. I don't either. It was absolutely, it sure looked pretty deliberate to me. He wasn't even near the stick. And maybe the refs didn't see it. I get it. Perhaps that's happened. It's possible. But isn't somebody in the NHL office reviewing this stuff? Isn't this what that player safety committee or that player safety board, whatever it is, isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. They certainly reviewed the game tape of Ristolainen, determined he needed three more games on the bench. They couldn't at least come up with a fine for Sidney Crosby. But if the O'Reilly thing wasn't bad enough, two nights later in Ottawa, you've alluded to this, he slashed Mark Mathot, shattering his finger, mm -hmm. which required 10 stitches. Oh, the to end close of the finger the was just dangling by a flap of skin. It was dis oh, it was so disgusting. And the Senators are now going to be stuck without his services for probably a couple of weeks. Yet, the, he's, Crosby's not going to face any disciplinary action. NHL Deputy Commissioner, what's the guy's name here? Bill Daly, told the ESPN that the league's not even looking into the incident. You mean this guy, Mathot I'm talking of, is going to lose a couple of weeks playing time, a guy who averages about 20 minutes of ice time per game. They're going to be without him. Yeah. Coach Guy Boucher said after the game that his finger's destroyed, it's shattered, he's out for weeks. Obviously annoyed. All that, and the league's not even going to look into it. Now, this is another play which happens quite a bit. It it, it does. I've seen the hit on Mathot, and, and in this instance, I, I really didn't think it was dirty. I think he was going for the stick, and he got hand. It was certainly less dirty than the O'Reilly play. Now, it may be unfortunate, and it may be unintentional, but Zach, that's still a penalty. And the NHL has shown for several years now that they will hand out justice based more on the result than the intent. We've seen guys who have zero track record of being dirty players get suspensions because the guy that they hit questionably got injured. And you'll see the same hit where the guy doesn't get injured with a lesser punishment. They base the punishment on the result of the play. Here you got a guy whose finger is cut off and Crosby gets absolutely nothing. This is a situation where you would definitely expect the NHL to come down hard and he doesn't get a hearing, he doesn't get a fine, he gets nothing. Yeah, what you're saying by ignoring it is that we're cool with slashes. We're okay right. with this. This is, the, And then you go, but then what is that player safety board for? Yeah. Because Mathot's finger was hanging off his hand. Yeah. It was disgusting. And, the, and you're not even looking into the incident. Right, and the one thing that, that got me especially about this is – we pan the officiating in the NFL and in Major League Baseball and stuff when we talk about how it needs to be, you know, updated or whatever. But 
at least those leagues, when they blow a call, they'll release a statement and say, hey, we missed this one. It affected the game. We're sorry. We blew it. The NHL has not come out and said, oh, we missed him hitting O'Reilly in the groin, you know, or, oh, on ice, we missed the finger getting cut off. They haven't even really acknowledged it. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's been just complete radio silence from them. And if you go with what Robin Lehner said, had the uniforms been reversed and it was Crosby who was slashed in that way, oh, there'd be outrage. Oh, they're not going to miss that one. Now, again, it goes both ways. Crosby took a shot several years ago in a nationally televised game. I think it was a stadium series, a winter classic, whichever it was. He ended up with a long-term concussion. He was out for quite a while. Again, no suspension on the guy who put the hit on him. I don't remember who it was. So whether you see the league being pro-Crosby or anti-Crosby really doesn't matter. What it comes down to, the end result is that he's treated differently. The problem is the league's opted to ignore it for too long. And I'm not talking about just giving a little respect to a veteran player. You know, it's one thing if you don't call a guy out on strike three. You know, a guy's been in the league for 15 years. Rookie will be on his way to the dugout already. But I'm not talking about these are plays that if you don't call them and you don't hand out fines and you don't get this under control, guys are going to get hurt. Ask Mathot. He's already hurt. Yeah, and it's not... I think it's pretty well known that I really, 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 really dislike Sidney Crosby. I don't think that's a secret. But it's not just a Crosby thing. It is a consistency thing. It's the same thing as much as I dislike Cam Newton. All those hits to the head that were not taken care of during this past season, it's the same thing. It's ridiculous. You've got to take care of that. You, oh, I, I got to find some you're, consistency. You're absolutely right. And I know, and that's why I was kind of looking forward to this segment, because I know you're not a Sidney Crosby fan, but it's it's the consistency. If you're not calling it, you're saying it's okay, and then you got a problem the next time you, you try to deal with this. You leave yourself open for criticism. That's really what it's about. First Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. And I'm not accusing the NHL of intentionally being evil. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I think the application of the verse is worthy of consideration. Look, man, don't take things so near that line which divides right and wrong that you lead other people to believe that you've actually crossed the line. Many believers want to push the limits of liberty in Christ. And I get that. But sometimes not everybody does. You lead people to believe that you're fully engaged in sin. You want to go out and you want to enjoy your liberty in Christ to go and have a couple of beverages. Well, some people view that as sinful. That's a stumbling block for some people. Why not, if Christians are called to holiness, why not set that as an example? Why not set that as your goal, to be holy, rather than push that limit and say, well, I'm not getting drunk, and the Bible doesn't specifically say that I can't drink alcohol, so I have liberty in Christ to enjoy. Why do you have to go so close to the line? And there are other instances. I'm not just picking on alcohol. There's so many things that sometimes we push the limits. Abstain from all appearance of evil. I have a friend who was on a missions trip to Africa. They went and they saw Victoria's Falls. I believe it's the largest waterfall in the in the world. Maybe not the tallest, maybe not the widest, but the combination of of height and width makes it the largest. I believe it's twice as tall as Niagara Falls. Whichever way it is, it's big. But on this missions trip, he says that there were people going right up to the edge and looking over. 
He chose to keep a safe distance back. His point is that's the way we ought to be when it comes to sinful situations. Why don't we go right up to the edge and look over? Keep a safe distance back. Unlike the NHL, God is not partial. Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God goes right to the heart of the matter. He's not influenced by whether someone's a star. He doesn't consider appearance. He doesn't consider circumstance. At the time, when, when Paul wrote this in Romans, Jews believed they were preferred by God. But what God prefers is righteousness. That's what we ought to be. Nobody breaks the rules. Jew, Greek, otherwise, nobody breaks the rules and gets away with it. doesn't matter how wealthy you are or who you know. We're all judged by the same measure. And the Bible actually gives us examples of times when impartiality led to problems. Gives us a number. I'll just give you two. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob's favoritism for Joseph drove his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, tell his father that he was killed by a wild beast. In 1 Samuel, Eli, maybe not unlike the NHL when it comes to Crosby, he turned a blind eye to the sins of his two sons, not only caused problems in the home, but it also led to a military defeat for the children of Israel at the hands of the Philistines. And there's a number of other examples. The effects of partiality, the effects of impartiality are a problem. But God is not a respecter of persons, giving everyone an equal opportunity, both for salvation and also judging by those same equal standards. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Paul's point in Romans is that we're all guilty of sin. Whether you're aware of God's law or not, you're guilty. If you go somewhere and you're not familiar with their laws when it comes to the speed limits or the cell phone or seat belts, and you get a ticket, you're guilty. It doesn't matter that you weren't aware. In verse 15 of Romans 2, the Bible says we have a conscience which convicts us. Romans 2.15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bear, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Your conscience serves to say what you're doing is okay, that your hands are clean. I, I don't feel guilty about this. But your conscience may also say, this is wrong, and you know it's wrong. Now, the danger comes in when you've ignored your conscience so often that your conscience becomes seared. It's no longer effective. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all sinful, and we're all judged equally by God. Unfortunately, we're all condemned as being guilty. We're all sinful. But we're all forgiven in the same way. A person doesn't get to heaven because they're a star. You know, there's no favoritism for the pastor, the church leader. It's all the same. They do not receive salvation based on appearance or circumstance. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are. But in this instance, it does matter who they know. Do you know Jesus? 
And forgiveness of sins is found at the cross in Jesus Christ. He took our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God gave us all a choice. People can choose to accept or decline God's plan of salvation, which is repentance and seeking forgiveness. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. You can accept it or you can decline it. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We can't buy our way out of the penalty of sin, which is hell. We can't pay the debt of our sin while we're still carrying the weight of those sins. You know what I mean? There's no partiality. We all need Jesus. God doesn't care what you did. What he cares about is that you turn to him. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a result of that death on the cross, forgiveness of sins is available to those who would simply ask. The Bible says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want to be saved from your sins, which has condemned you to hell, turn to God and ask him to forgive you. Tell him you know you're a sinner. Tell him you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Admit your guilt. Seek his forgiveness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know Jesus? If you want to know more about a faith in Christ, you can reach out to us through Facebook, through our website, through Twitter. And maybe you just want some prayer. You can leave an anonymous message on our studio line, 585-431-1202, 585-431-1202. I'm Rick Benson. He's Zach Barletta. This is the Beyond the Game program. Let me tell you about Town & Country Pest Solutions. They've been in business for nearly three very successful decades. They have the experience to tackle any pest problem. Covering Rochester, Syracuse, Buffalo, Albany, Watertown, any place that can pick up this radio station is somewhere Town & Country Pest Solutions takes on pests and critters of all kinds. Town & Country's technicians are friendly, professional, and most importantly, they're knowledgeable. Bees, wasps, roaches, ants, bats, mice, call Town & Country. Even raccoons or larger animals, call Town & Country. Have a bed bug problem or just want to check and make sure that you don't have a bed bug problem? Call Town & Country. Early detection is key when it comes to bed bugs, so if you suspect the potential problem, call Town & Country Pest Solutions today. Town & Country's success rate and their guarantee are both well above industry average. Call Town & Country Pest Solutions today, 585-426-5024. That's 585-426-5024. And let their team of professionals handle whatever pest problem you may have. Or visit them online, townandcountrysolutions.com. Town & Country Pest Solutions, fearing nothing but God. Do you know a high school athlete looking for a D2 college? Hi, I'm Dr. Dina Porterfield, president of Roberts Wesleyan College. We're proud to be a serious athletic school with great opportunities for serious athletes. In fact, we have the only Division II athletic program in the area. Our many varsity programs range from basketball, tennis, and cross country to track and field, golf, volleyball, and soccer. Tell the young athlete in your life about Roberts. Visit roberts.edu. 
Welcome back to the Beyond the Game program. I'm Rick Benson. This is an encore presentation of BTG. I hope that as we're doing, you're enjoying your Easter weekend with family, friends, and loved ones. This next segment is from our March 18th broadcast. We talk about Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr. He was saying that he thinks adversity may actually end up helping his Golden State Warriors. We then make a biblical application about how God is there for us through trials and uses those trials for our benefit. Here's that segment from our March 18th broadcast. You found the Beyond the Game program. Rick Benson, Zach Barletta, recording from Rochester, New York. You can find us on the web, btgprogram.com, or on social media, at btgprogram. The Golden State Warriors, who at the beginning of the season were the super team, the team nobody was going to be able to beat after they added Kevin Durant in the offseason. Well, they've been in a bit of a funk lately after losing their superstar player to an injury. They've been floating around, I think, 500 the last 10, 12 games or so, and they needed a great performance. I mean a great performance by Draymond Green to barely defeat the lowly Philadelphia 76ers earlier this week. They find themselves in a battle now at the top of the conference standings with the San Antonio Spurs, a team who was already a threat to the Warriors' Western Conference title hopes even before Durant got hurt. They lost to the Spurs last Saturday night, but nobody's really using that as much of a gauge for how the Warriors will match up against the Spurs since the the Warriors chose to sit most of their stars against San Antonio. I I mean, they had guys from the front office and the locker room maintenance staff trying to, you know, <laughs> be playing that game. Which, I, man, I think this is something the league needs to do something about. I still maintain this, this is not good. And if you're a fan and you drop big money to see star players, you're going to be a little disappointed. But you, even if you don't see those stars, you want a decent game. You don't want to be seeing the last guy on the bench. I tell you, if you drop big money and that happens to you, those people that were in San Antonio, you would think twice about spending that money again. You just don't want to see the last guy to bench. You want to see the stars. But I don't know what the league can do about it, although I thought it was interesting that after he sat his best players, a day or two later, Warriors head coach Steve Kerr suggested a solution that, you know, I thought it made some sense. Now, obviously, players need to be rested. Of course. And there's some gamesmanship, and when you choose to rest those players, you don't want to give an opponent some firsthand information. You don't want to give them a test run, if you will, on how to handle you, a team that you know you're probably going to face at some point in the playoffs. The problem seems to be the scheduling. And the Warriors had been to five cities in eight days, and all of them were on the East Coast, before coming home for one game against the Boston Celtics, then going back out on the road for back-to-back games against Minnesota and San Antonio. No wonder they sat their players. Now, Kerr is suggesting that the schedule makers do a better job because he, he didn't think they needed to come home for that one game against the Celtics. He said better communication and scheduling national broadcast games, which this was, will help. That game against Boston was put there on the schedule, it sort of slid in there because national national TV games are only played on certain days of the week. They're very specific with where they put them, depending on which television network is carrying it. Kerr says this. He says, the next step in my mind 
is for the league to get together with the broadcast partners and say, okay, here's the ten, here's the games we want on national TV. Let's really examine the previous 10 days and try to make it so those things are eliminated. Now, I know there's only a few really, truly marketable teams. You know who they are because they're the only ones you see on the national broadcasts. If it's on TV and you're not watching the local regional feed, you know, your local team, then you're either going to get the Warriors, the Spurs, the Cavs, maybe the Celtics, the Thunder. There might be even a second tier, which would include the Bulls, the Mavericks. But these are your truly marketable teams, and I get it. People want to see LeBron James. They want to see the Cavaliers. They want to see Steph Curry. And I actually don't think everybody wants to see LeBron. A lot of people are kind of in LeBron burnout right now, don't you think? I mean, you see him on every magazine, on every sports channel. We're kind of in LeBron overload. Well, maybe you're right. Now, I have no statistical data to back this up. This is just the sense I get. But the point is simply this. Work in a few other teams. I mean, do I need to see the Cavs? multiple days a week. Yeah, maybe if Cavs fans are saying, of course they do. How about giving these teams a break along the lines of what Kerr was saying? Adding a few other teams that you hardly ever see. But maybe when you do that, do a better job. Do a more thorough job of bouncing around the league and maybe giving us some updates and some live look-ins so that even though I'm watching Sun Sixers, I'm still getting LeBron. I'm still getting the Spurs. I'm getting enough of all the other guys through live look-ins and through through updates, even though I'm not watching that particular game. But Steve Kerr said something else after Monday's practice that I thought was interesting. He was asked about the recent struggles the team's been going through, and he said that he actually thinks that it's good for the team. Now I don't want to get carried away. They're they're making a they're they're facing a tough go of it here without Durant as of late. But this is still a very good team, and they're in position to end up the top seed in the West and, and are certainly a threat to win an NBA title again. Here's Kerr on the adversity that his team is facing. I mean, it's going to sound crazy. I kind of like I actually kind of like it. I think um, we need some adversity. Um, we obviously have some probably the, for the first time in two and a half years in terms of the regular season. Um, I think adversity can help. As I said, it forces you to, to kind of examine what you're doing, clean some things up, and get right. And uh, I think this is going to be good for us in the long run because we're, we're going we're to tighten up a lot of things. I thought last year we just kept winning through a lot of the slippage late in the season. And uh, it helped us hang that tiny little banner on the wall over there. And we didn't hang, hang the big one over there. And, uh, we like the big one better, so I think, I think this could be, uh, in a weird way, it could be helpful down the street. Now, no doubt, if he had to choose, he would certainly rather have Durant in the lineup. He would probably prefer to be cruising through the season towards the top seed in the West. At the very least, the struggles, the struggles let a coach do what a coach does, and that's coach. What I mean is when a team's taking chances. They're not really playing fundamentally sound. They're making poor shot decisions. They're uh, making poor passes. If those shots are going in and those passes are being completed, it's tough for a coach to say anything. What are you going to say? But when things aren't going well, he can point to those problem areas and, and sort of coach them up. 
teams that juggernaut their way through the regular season, they're not always the ones who are lifting the trophy at the conclusion of the season. Many times they are, but certainly not always. The team that's playing well as the postseason begins, one which has used the regular season to fine-tune itself going into the postseason, they're the ones that generally have the most success. That certainly could be those juggernaut teams, but it's it's not a lock to be. A team which is battle-tested is often best prepared going into the playoffs for whatever is going to come its way. That's why so many teams, they, they want key veteran guys to be part of their lineup, to be in their locker room. They don't want just a, a bunch of rookies. You need those guys, those battle-tested guys, to have some success. That's why a, guy, a coach like Tom Izzo, he opts to play such a tough early season schedule there at Michigan State because it prepares them come tournament time. His teams are usually very well prepared. Yeah, I think we've talked about it on the show before that sometimes you see a team that locks up their playoff spot early and they kind of can coast into the playoff and rest their stars that sometimes they have a hard time getting going when the games really count. And so maybe if they don't have to cruise in, maybe if they have to battle a little bit, maybe you're right. Maybe it helps them when crunch time rolls around. But I do get, I get what Steve Kerr is saying. His team may benefit from having to go through this, this more difficult season, this tougher season than last year. I think it's something to keep in mind when we go through difficult times. It's easy to say the sun will come up tomorrow or, you know, tell somebody to keep a stiff upper lip. But when you're in the midst of a struggle, man, it's easy to forget that the tough times can actually be good for us. And for some, those difficult times, they can seem hopeless. There's no hope at the end. That's why it's important to remember how much God loves us. Never, never lose sight of that. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Don't lose sight of the fact that God loves you, that he's there. We can speak to him at any time. If God allows us to go through pain, it's because he has something good he wants to accomplish in us. Adversity, hardships, these things are a tool. They're designed to help us, not hurt us. God wants to grow godly character within us. There's a great passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about a hardship in his life, and we don't know exactly what that hardship is, but Paul dealt with some stuff in his life. Just a chapter earlier, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he describes some of what he went through during his time serving the Lord. Things like imprisonment, beatings, shipwreck, hunger, thirst, other things. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, look, I get it. It's significant. If it's knocked you off your game, it's significant. And and Paul can relate. He had problems too. Yet he wrote the book of Philippians, though. While in prison, I might add, the book of Philippians, a, a book filled with joy. Despite his problems, despite being in prison, he wrote those words. He had problems for sure, but he understood that at the end of the day, God's plans are for our own benefit. And again, while we don't know the specifics of what this particular hardship was he's referring to in chapter 12, we do know that God that he asked God three times to take it away, but God declined. Paul came to learn from it, to embrace it, really. He said it kept him from getting prideful. And could that have been a problem for the Warriors last season? 
when it tie, it just seemed like they were on cruise control. Maybe they got prideful. Maybe that's why they ended up with the little banner, as Steve Kerr talked about, instead of the big one. Paul also said that not only did it help him from getting prideful, but it taught him to depend on Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 12, I'm just going to read verses 7 to 10. It says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When things seem dark, it's crucial. I I mean, I believe it's crucial to remember that God is always with us. Sure, at times we may not feel his presence, but that's a promise. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And God made that promise to Joshua after Moses died. You may imagine Joshua feeling a little bit intimidated about leading the people, you know, the many enemies and uncertainties that lie in front of them. But God said in Joshua 1.5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. You have that same assurance. If you're a believer, you have the very Spirit of God living within you leading you, guiding you. Trials, difficulties, hardships, these are tools in God's hands to correct us, to perhaps turn us around and and, and bring us onto his path. I retweeted this this statement this week. And forgive me, I've actually forgotten who the original tweet was was sent out by, but if you're really curious, you can go back through my feed. It was only a couple days ago. But the tweet was this. Be careful of being so far into your problem that you become far away from God. Draw close to him, and he'll draw close to you. That's a great reminder. The great part of that passage in 2 Corinthians was that when Paul came to understand that his hardship, his thorn, was there to help him by keeping him humble and keeping him dependent on Jesus, he was able to make this powerful statement in verse 9, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He became, in his own words, content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. And then said maybe one of the most repeated phrases in all the Bible to remind us of God's provisions during difficult times. He said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's okay to have questions, to wonder why God may may have allowed this thing to happen, but don't ever doubt that he loves you and that he's there for you. John 3.16 talks about his love being so great that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look, even Jesus, Jesus himself, when he bore our sins on the cross, he had questions. He endured for us the penalty of our sins. 
and felt the pain of being separated from God the Father. And he asked in Matthew 27, verse 46, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? While we may be confused, God's able to see the other side of the storm. He knows the good which will come by going through it. The Bible reminds us of his love. It reminds us about why we deal with difficult times. Its words encourage us to to endure, to get through it by relying on his strength. If we allow it to, it comforts us. It comforts us in difficult times and even strengthens us at the same time. As we go to break, I'm reminded of a story by Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, talks about a woman she met on one of her African missions trips. And Johnny asked the woman what her favorite Bible passage was. And the woman said, and it came to pass. Thinking it odd, Johnny inquired a little bit more, wondered why. And the woman explained that life is not easy, but we trust in God and he make it come to pass. This too shall pass. Whatever it is you're going through, it will pass. There is nothing that is so trying that we cannot trust God to see us through it. Whatever you're going through, keep holding on. Keep going. You can get through it. This too will pass. God has your hand. And you know there's a difference. When a child holds your hand, they have the choice to let go at any time. But when you need extra security, you take that child's hand. And when you hold the child's hand, it's up to you when to let go. God has your hand. He's not letting go. If you want extra prayer with whatever it is you're going through, you can reach out to us through our website. You can reach out to us through Facebook, through Twitter. You can even leave us an anonymous message on our studio line. 585-431-1202. That's 585-431-1202. You don't even have to leave your name. Just ask us for prayer. We'll be glad to pray for you. I'm Rick Benson. This is the Beyond the Game program. Here's the Red Hawks report for this week, April 15th, 2017. The Red Hawks report is presented by Roberts Wesleyan College. Despite getting five goals from senior Castle Joukowsky, the nation's leading goal scorer, the women's lacrosse team lost to Mercy College last Friday, 15-8. On Sunday, they dropped another one, unfortunately, this time to the nation's sixth-ranked team, LIU Post, 17-3, with Joukowsky getting all three goals for the Red Hawks in the loss. The men also dropped a pair this past week, falling to Chestnut Hill College 9-7 last Saturday, and then in a tight one against St. Thomas Aquinas, Senior Alex Bianchi's two goals weren't enough to hold off the Spartans, who got a late fourth-quarter goal to beat the Red Hawks 5-4. And it was a split last weekend in men's tennis. After losing 7-2 last Friday to New York Institute of Technology, the Red Hawks bounced back Saturday with a 7-2 win over Caldwell University. Freshman Paul Langbrook was named the ECC's Rookie of the Week for the second straight week and for the third time this season. The men's golf team finished fourth in the St. Thomas Aquinas Invite, the host team finished first, followed by Dominican College, Wilmington University, and Roberts Wesleyan. Senior Caleb Edwards led Roberts, shooting a 77 in the first round and then a 74 in the final round for a 7-over for the event. The Easter week ahead means a light schedule for the Red Hawks athletic calendar, though the men's tennis team will take on Queens College later today, April 15th at 1 p.m., and the women's lacrosse team will host Edinburgh University at 4 p.m. on Tuesday the 18th 
Head over to the Roberts Wesleyan campus and support the Red Hawks. That's it for the Red Hawks report for this week, April 15th, 2017. And you can follow Roberts Wesleyan Athletics on Twitter at RWC Red Hawks or visit their website, athletics.roberts.edu. This has been the Red Hawks Report presented by Roberts Wesleyan College. Do you know an athlete whose participation in athletics is vital to their college choice? Then consider telling them about Roberts Wesleyan College. Hi, I'm Dr. Dina Porterfield, president of Roberts. We field 17 varsity sports and offer the only NCAA D2 program in Greater Rochester. Our teams have won six conference titles and reached three NCAA national championship appearances. Help the athlete you know to take their game to the next level. Visit roberts.edu. Beyond the Game, talking sports from a different point of view, highlighting the stories and the people of faith. It's not a faith program that includes sports. It's a sports talk show rooted in faith-based principles. Welcome back to the show, recording in the BTG studios in Rochester, New York. Here's your host, Rick Benson. Happy Easter weekend once again. I'm Rick Benson. This is an encore presentation of the Beyond the Game program. I hope that tomorrow morning, Easter Sunday, you'll be celebrating the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church near you, wherever it is you may be listening from. If you're in the Rochester, New York area and don't have a church that you call home, I invite you to join me at First Bible Baptist Church in Hilton, 990 Manitou Road. Services are at 8.30 and 10.30, and if you do stop by, I'll be at the first service. I do hope you'll say hello. This final segment of our show this morning is taken from last week's broadcast, April 8th. Zach and I talked about the UConn women's basketball team not making the title game, and we made a biblical application to the story of David and Goliath. Here's that segment from last week's show, April 8th. Thanks for being with us. Rick Benson, Zach Barletta, recording the Beyond the Game program from our home here in the BTG studios in Rochester, New York, btgprogram.com or at btgprogram. The program is available to be downloaded at our website, btgprogram.com. You can also listen to our archived previous broadcasts, and you can join the many across the nation and even around the world who download the program each week to their device, you can subscribe at btgprogram.com. Carolina is the heart of college basketball. That's been the case for some time, but whether you're talking about the men's or the women's college basketball, the Carolinas are where the champions call home. Of course, North Carolina won the men's title in a whistle-laden victory over Gonzaga. Mm -hmm. And I'm not buying into what some are saying, that the numerous whistles helped North Carolina win its sixth national title. But give them credit, the Tar Heels were better on this night. Gonzaga had a great run, but the Tar Heels were better. Gonzaga can be proud, but the Tar Heels were no doubt the better team. All the numerous whistles really did was make a great basketball game that much less enjoyable. It didn't make it unenjoyable, mind you. It just made it a little less enjoyable. Gonzaga didn't win the title, but by getting to the title game, they gave me the edge I needed to win our BTG bracket pool. I beat out Darren, who had to settle for second. You remember our former co-host, Darren Metzger. If you happen to see him some point in the near future, please congratulate him on finishing second, (laughs) on being a non-winner. 
being a also ran, being something less than a real man. Maybe that was a little little too far. I assumed uh, I assumed that you had won because I didn't hear anything from him after the game. So I figured if he had somehow managed to win the bracket, our phones would be blowing up. My daughter won her bracket as well. It was a good week in the Benson home. I believe my daughter ran up winnings of about nine bucks, she says. That's about nine dollars more than I did. We gotta change that, Zach, for next year. We gotta do it where the second place finisher needs to buy the first place finisher lunch. And if and if a bunch of people are tied for second, they all need to chip in and buy lunch for the first place winner. I don't care if you finish last, if you finish, you know, near the bottom. It it comes down to who finished second because you're the first non-winner. Not only did North Carolina win the men's title, but congratulations as well to South Carolina who won the women's title. The Gamecocks, as Syracuse was last year, represented in both the men's and women's Final Four. That's quite an accomplishment. I think, though, only UConn, if I remember right, is the only team that has won men's and women's national titles in the same year. I actually think they did it twice, but I know they did it at least once. And as far as I can recall, I think they're the only ones to have done that. Well, there hasn't been a women's team besides UConn for, like, some people's entire lifetimes, right? (laughs) So, I mean, that's a pretty good guess. And South Carolina has a terrific women's program. Their win isn't a fluke in any way. They earned their title. I'm sure they're excited about it, rightfully so. But I guess what I do sort of feel badly about for them is that for the casual fan, few are going to remember who actually won. What they'll remember is that UConn didn't win. And they may not even remember who beat UConn because it wasn't South Carolina. It'll be like the gold medal winning USA hockey team back in 1980. That miracle game is well remembered where they beat the Soviet Union, but that wasn't the gold medal game. You might even have Al Michaels' great call to the ending of the game going through your head as I'm sitting here talking. But most people don't mind that it, remember that it was Finland that they beat for the championship for the gold medal. UConn had won an amazing 111 games in a row before losing in the Final Four to Mississippi State 66-64, and that in overtime. At one point in the game, Mississippi State had run up a 16-point lead over the mighty UConn. Now look, people want to say that the 111 games in a row doesn't mean as much because it was women and it wasn't the men, and what a bunch of nonsense. Domination is domination, no matter who's doing it. Exactly right. We're not talking about a couple of three- or four-game win streaks that we're comparing. This is 111 games. Men or women, it's not hard to imagine a team reeling off a string of wins against you know, a, a short amount of watered-down competition. You know, you get, a, you get four or five games on your schedule against weaker clubs, and you, know, you can run off a win streak. Maybe you even got one or two competitive teams in there. That's not what we're talking We're talking about 111 games. That's an amazing streak, no matter who it is. Even to do the simplest things, to do it 111 times in a row without making a mistake, well, that's pretty good. I mean, just think, can you toss a ball in the air and catch it 111 straight times? Now, what has that got involved? No fluke wind catches the ball, no strange distraction, no hiccup, nothing. Everything goes right 111 times in a row. That's a pretty big deal. But it was Mississippi State who went on to the title game to face the Gamecocks thanks to a buzzer-beating jumper by Morgan William. 
UConn had been down by 16, but they did come back. They forced overtime, and they darn near escaped and kept the streak alive. No one in the country thought that could happen. We beat the greatest team with the greatest streak in the history of sports, says Mississippi State coach Vic Schaefer. Is it? I tend to think the greatest streak in the history of sports, to me, in my opinion, is Joe DiMaggio's 56-game winning hitting streak. Excuse me. I think you could call it the greatest winning streak because 111 games is it's got to be far and away the longest winning streak ever. But the greatest individual streak, no. I know some people like to say Cal Ripken, and that's a great streak. Don't get me wrong, but people go to work all the time. <laughs> you know, and I, I know that's minimizing what he did, but really, people go to work every day. What Joe DiMaggio's streak, he had to get a hit every time he went to work. He had to be successful mm-hmm. every time he went to work. I think that makes that the greatest streak of all time. The Mississippi State-UConn game did get some attention, though. It was televised on ESPN2. It averaged 1.8 million viewers. That's good enough for a 13% increase over last year's semifinal games. And by the way, it beat out both the Rockets-Warriors game and the Spurs-Thunder, which was part of a back-to-back broadcast on ESPN. I wonder if the numbers grew throughout the game as people were finding out that Connecticut was down and then tuned in to see the historic takedown. I wonder if the numbers grew. But you know, the South Carolina-Mississippi State Championship game, that was also up. Ratings were reported by ESPN to be up 20% above last year's championship match between UConn and Syracuse. It's also 4% higher than the previous year, 2015, between UConn and Notre Dame. Good for the ladies. You know, I've heard some refer to this as a David versus Goliath, this matchup between Mississippi State and UConn. And UConn, while most definitely a Goliath of a program, this hasn't been the same dominant UConn team that we've seen in the past. Very, very good. Don't get me wrong. Amazing. They've won 111 in a row, but though they weren't all this year. At times this year, this team had been pressed. At times, they'd been challenged. They always came out on top, no doubt about it. They've continued building on the success of those that came before them. And yes, they definitely meet the Goliath profile, in my opinion. But Mississippi State, they were no David. This was an upset, but it wasn't the most improbable of upsets. It wasn't a rematch of the same two teams that met in last year's Sweet 16. If you recall, the Husky just pummeled the Bulldogs 98-38. I should say that they weren't a David in a sense that they weren't weak, they weren't insignificant. This This is a good team, this Mississippi State team. Like South Carolina, they're a quality women's basketball program. But they did resemble David in their faith. They had confidence going into this game. We believe in our locker room that it would be done, Coach Schaefer said. Of course he did. It's why you play the game. It's why you go take you take the field, you take the court. You have a realistic idea of your chances. You know that you're facing a formidable, formidable foe. You know that, listen, everything's going to have to go right here. We're going to have to be focused from beginning to end. We're going to have to play our best. But we have a chance. You know that as a player. And even though he was facing a more formidable foe than UConn would have been to Mississippi State, David had confidence in his God. Though the stakes were higher, David's life was on the line. The stakes were higher than the outcome of a basketball game for sure. 
His faith in God in the face of difficult circumstances serves as an inspiration for all of us. I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, this is verse 37, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. David had confidence, man. I mean, he was bordering bordering right on cockiness. He had confidence. He had faith in God. He knew what God was capable of. The Bible tells us David was small. He was weaker than most of his age, and really by the world's standards, not prepared to play in this big game against the Philistine. If there were a scouting report for this battle, man, David's name wouldn't have even come up. Wouldn't have been listed on that report. He wasn't a starter, if if you know what I mean. But as we all know, David surprised everyone, but not himself. It wasn't a surprise to him. You know, all believers in Christ will find themselves facing big challenges, big obstacles from time to time. Sometimes those challenges seem as though you're staring right into the eyes of a Goliath. It's a big deal. It's at those moments that either faith or fear is going to take over. As believers, we're challenged every day to do what is right. Being committed to Christ means that regardless of the obstacles you're facing, regardless of the circumstances, we're called to do what's right. David was laughed at. He risked failure. And in this case, failure meant losing his life as he battled Goliath. And yet he pressed ahead. God is faithful. God is mighty enough to produce great victories in our lives, just as he did in David's. We know how that story of David and Goliath ends. With a sling and five stones from a brook, he he went right at the challenge. And with God guiding his hand, the stone that he threw hit the giant right between the eyes, and the big man fell. God can do the same with you, with the challenge that you're facing. Satan stands in front of Christians, and he's challenging them. He wants to knock them off their game. He wants to get them to be unfaithful to God. There's trials, there's temptations, there's problems, there's obstacles. They're not all presented by the devil. Sometimes we get our we create our own mess. But one of the devil's greatest weapons is challenging Christians to question what it is that they believe. He's subtle in whispering doubts into the ears of a believer. It worked way back in Genesis chapter 3. He got Eve to doubt what God was really saying, what God really meant. Sometimes as we're facing our biggest challenges, we we just don't know if God is there. And there's a few things I want to leave with you to encourage you in your faith, to encourage you in your confidence in God. Just as David knew that God would use those stones he pulled from the brook, God will use you too. And he'll use the tools that he's equipped you with. 
Ephesians 6, 11 says, Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. A key thing in every battle you face is to remember that the moment you placed your faith in Christ, the moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior, His Spirit came to live within your heart. Rely on that Spirit. Trust that Spirit. Avoid trying to do things in your own power. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. Sometimes our thoughts seem to be more on the enemy, seem to be more on the fact that there is a Goliath out there, there is a challenge in front of us, rather than focusing on how to defeat that challenge, how to come out victorious, how to rely on God. We spend more time studying the enemy, and I'm not saying that's completely bad, but we forget all about studying our greatest weapon, our greatest defense, our greatest fortress. Don't forget to seek God in facing challenges, and don't forget the things that he's already done in your life. Like Mississippi State against Yukon, David knew that victory was possible. He had faced big enemies before. We just read about the lion and the bear in 1 Samuel 17. The reason David was so sure of victory, because he had gone to the well of divine strength numerous times before and proven it to be sufficient. Perhaps you've had things in your life. God has carried you through things, seen you through things. Why could he do it then and not now? Of course he can still do that. The fact that you're here today means you got through yesterday. means through whatever challenges you faced in the past, you've gotten through them, and you're here to tell about it. Stay encouraged by reading the Bible. That's where David found his confidence. Consider his own writings. Psalm 119.92 says, Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. A few verses later in Psalm 119.97, David says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Stay saturated in the word of God. My challenge to you this week is to keep praying. Keep moving forward. I know you're facing challenges. Some are big, some are small. Keep moving forward. Stay faithful. Stay strong. Stay confident. Each week we conclude our show by encouraging people to be bold and be great this week. Attempt great things for God, and then expect great things from God. With him at our side, should we be any less confident than David was to do just that? That's our show for this week. Thanks to you for being with us. This has been the Beyond the Game program. If you haven't done it already, check out Zach's new podcast he does with his brother, I've mentioned it earlier in the program, and if you enjoy myths, curious stories, unsolved mysteries, check out the Myth and Mysteries podcast available on iTunes and Google Play, or visit their website, mythandmysteriespod.com. For Zach Barletta, I'm Rick Benson. Lord willing, we'll be back together again next week, right here at this same time. Be bold and be great this week, everybody. Be bold.